Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today both of the authors of a book published by Bristol University Press titled Covert Violence, the Secret Weapon of the Powerless, which examines covert violence across a number of different institutions, um, understanding what is actually happening, how this might require us to reconceptualize a whole number of things um, and what might be going on here. So I'm very pleased to welcome both of the authors, Dr. Jack Levin and Dr. Julie Wiest, to the podcast to tell us all about their book. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Could you start us off, please, each introducing yourselves a little bit and explaining why you decided to write the book and do it together? Um, Perhaps, Jack, you could start us off? Certainly. Um, I had, for a number of years, studied different kinds of murder, um, but they were always overt cases that made the headlines. Um, In 1985, for example, I wrote a book called Mass Murder, America's Growing Menace, which was really the first study that was ever done on serial and mass murder. And that's really where I stayed for many years, writing, doing research on those topics. And then um, I met Julie. (laughs) And Julie and I uh, met at a meeting, a criminology meeting, and discovered that we were both interested in many of the same topics, including violence and communication, Uh, At that point, um, we we wrote together a number of articles and a book about premeditated murder. But again, it was about overt cases, people getting shot, mass killings where where many people were killed, um, uh, serial killers who... Who, who wanted desperately to be popular and, and famous, or should I say infamous. But uh, Julie had written an excellent book about serial murder, and I'm going to let her go from here, but that, that made me very excited about cooperating, collaborating with her on this particular project. All right. Thanks, Jack. Um, yeah, this, uh, well, I guess first of all, introducing myself, I'm uh, Julie Wiest, a professor of sociology at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. And I, I agree, once we started writing together, it just, it clicked. Uh, we have very similar writing styles. We almost always agree on um, our analysis and in our perspective. And um, as far as this book, I think we just had such a nice time 
writing the last one together. It just flowed and went very um, easily and, and quickly. So we knew we wanted to write another one. Um, as far as this actual topic, it started with us having a conversation about the incidence of homicides that are meant to look like something else, whether that's you know meant to look like an illness or an accident or even meant to look self-inflicted. And we agreed that those homicides must exist, but there wasn't you know any data out there. Um, so we assume they exist, especially because you know, making a murder look like something non-criminal would be a rational strategy for a killer. Um, so, you know, no criminal death, no death investigation. And we were also familiar with some cases where the strategy had temporarily worked and allowed killers to go free for um, sometimes years before being discovered. So it also seemed like an important area to study given how few uh, deaths, at least in more wealthy nations are officially considered homicides. So in the U.S., for example, uh, which has a much higher homicide rate than in comparable nations, homicides still account for less than 1% of all deaths. And so we started with an exploratory study just, you know, sort of based on, you know, having several conversations like this and identified cases where deaths that were first officially classified as natural, accidental, or self-inflicted, and then were sometime later officially reclassified as homicide. Um, we took a close look at all of at, at those that we could find in a specified time frame, and the results of that study really, I think, opened our eyes and laid the foundation for this concept we developed of covert violence. And then of course, you know, the foundation for the book. Hmm. Thank you both for that introduction, kind of both of your partnership and of course of the topic for this book. Picking up Julie on what you were just sort of finishing there with, can you tell us a bit more about having done this exploratory study and investigation of different cases and how they're categorized? What have you both determined sets covert violence apart from other forms of violence? Uh, yes, excellent. <laughs> excellent question. Uh, covert violence is distinct in multiple ways, uh, though it's important to note that all forms of violence share the potential for irreparable damage uh, to you know individuals, families, and communities. Um, but one important difference is that acts of covert violence are far more difficult to detect than overt forms. Uh, covert violence is typically meant to either go undetected or to appear to be a non-criminal event. Uh, so that could be maybe a steady poisoning over time that resembles a long-term illness or maybe an arson that looks like an accidental house fire, maybe a a fatal fall that has the appearance of a freak accident. Uh, so when covert violence is carried out convincingly or effectively, the most plausible explanation um, might just be readily accepted by all parties involved with little or no follow-up investigation. Uh, and it also appears to us that second looks 
on cases that have already ostensibly been solved or, you know, already been classified as something other than homicide, those second looks are very rare. And even when they do occur, the bar is high for reclassification and evidence may no longer be available. Witnesses may not remember, you know, uh, so it can be very difficult that even if there is suspicion um, and a second look is, is made, it, it still can be difficult to prove such cases. Um, and of course, all social institutions have limited resources that might prevent officials from taking what might seem to look like extra steps. So we do hope that this book helps to raise some awareness of the potential prevalence of these acts, and especially their hard-to-detect nature, because we need to develop some um, better techniques uh, to investigate, you know, what are potentially cases of covert violence that don't necessarily look like it on the surface. Yeah, Jack, do you want to add anything? Well, Julie is absolutely right, Uh, and most of these cases, when they occur, become cold cases. They're not discovered to be murders. Sometimes for many years, we found one case that was originally um, seen as an illness. And then 44 years later, it was seen for what it really was, a murder. And so these are cases that are difficult to find. And in fact, We had a lot of trouble at first, and then what we decided to do is to use the Nexus database of U.S. news sources as well as a Google search, and we were able to uncover 53 deaths that occurred over the period from 1975 and 2019 And these deaths were officially reclassified as homicides, but only during the three-year period of July 2017 to June 2020. Uh, Most of these were not the typical overt cases that we all see in official statistics. For example, the the FBI says that 85% of all murders are committed by means of firearms or stabbings. Well, most of these are committed in almost every other way you can think of. Uh, They're they're not the kind that get a lot of attention. You know, they're not given publicity. The killers don't want their their names in the headlines. Uh, These are clandestine, covert, cases, um, and they go undetected as murders for a long period of time, months or even many years. Mm. So given those factors, um, Jack, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit more about what you just mentioned of kind of how you found these cases, given the difficulty here. Is there anything further you'd like to tell us about that? Well, these are cases that even though the method that we chose certainly doesn't get at all of the cases, these are the ones that were at some point later on 
reclassified, and then they got media attention. You know, they were in newspapers or or news reports on the webs. So um, there are probably many more of these covert cases that never get detected at all, but we don't have them. We have the tip of the iceberg, but at least there is an iceberg there. And before this, very few, if any, researchers were interested in these covert cases. They looked mostly at the mass killings with firearms or stabbings and the cases that got plenty of attention in the public and and by criminologists. Well, these are quite different. They got almost no attention. And then finally, months, if not years later, uh, they were, they showed up in some of the uh, media reports, still not in the FBI data or in other reports of, of, by government. Julie, is there anything you'd like to add on this point? Yeah, I, I would just really second what he's saying. We, we don't know how many cases there are, but there have to be more than we're able, you know, that we've been able to uncover so far. That iceberg is there. Uh, so if we were able to uncover, you know, more than and in that time frame, it was, you know, more than one case per month in that just three year time frame that not only was found out, which seems unlikely, but then also received media attention. It does just indicate, um, you know, we don't know how many are under that surface. So if we then think about kind of, as you've both said, the tip of the iceberg, but then the official data, Jack, you mentioned the FBI data. What are some of the key ways that the analysis you've both been able to do in this book, does it contrast with? Does it add to that data? What's the relationship between kind of those two things? Maybe, Julie, you want to start us off on this one? Yes, yeah. Uh, Our analysis has the potential to upend official homicide data. Uh, Methods that are frequently used in covert homicides tend to closely mirror common circumstances and accidental and self-inflicted deaths, as we mentioned. So, for example, um, poisoning accounts for nearly 66,000 accidental deaths uh, in the U.S. and each year, and more than 6,000 suicides in the U.S. each year. But only officially about 100 annual homicides. So, you know, we think how many of those 70,000 plus combined poisonings are really homicides in disguise? We don't know, but it can't be zero, right? So it is a very common, you know, way that people die by accident and, and you know, suicide, but extremely rare in homicides according to official statistics. Um, we also found there are important differences in the demographics of both perpetrators and victims when we compare the covert and the overt cases. Um, so according to official statistics, homicides are overwhelmingly committed by and perpetrated against uh, young adult men. And that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. 
but um, our study found a larger pool of women involved in covert homicide as both perpetrators and as victims. Uh, so if we're looking at FBI data, uh, women are identified as about 12% of perpetrators of homicides. And in our data, they were about a third. And in terms of victims, the FBI statistics have you know women as being victims about 22% of the time in homicides. And in our data, it was almost 50%. Uh, so we also saw a larger number of victims on either end of the age spectrum, uh, including those who were 12 years and younger and those who were 75 years old and older. Um, so again, those, those outliers that are extremely rare in the official statistics, we did have a higher incidence. Um, and then I would also say the relationships and the motives involved in covert homicides uh, were different compared to overt ones. Uh, covert cases appear even more likely to occur within families and almost never among strangers. So in, in the FBI data, where there, where there is a known relation, and oftentimes there isn't, uh, in these overt cases. Uh, but the FBI data puts the figure around 19% of homicides are uh, perpetrated by strangers. And in our data, it was less than 6%. And so the more common um, sort of motivations in the overt homicides are arguments and conflicts. And that was way less likely to be the motive in the covert cases that we looked at. Um, and ours were more likely motivated by profit, pleasure, revenge. They tended to be um, much more often premeditated, like clearly premeditated, and much more kind of targeted to a very specific uh, victim compared to those overt cases. Jack, do you want to add? Well, only one thing. Um, the cases that get reclassified months or years later, um, are often redefined thanks to a confession on the part of the perpetrator or the suspicions of a friend or a family member who won't let go of it and, and continues to, to target the police for their cooperation. Um, or there are other ways in which uh, these cases come to the attention of authorities, uh, but most of them never be, be, come to the attention of authorities, and we never know about them. Hmm. Which is fascinating then to consider um, what your data has raised, as you've both just described to us. Thinking a little bit about um, Julie, some of what you mentioned in terms of kind of motive and who the perpetrators are, perhaps you could walk us through a bit more why women um, particularly or um, children, you mentioned kind of 12 and under, might use covert violence. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you, you know, you of course said our subtitle when you introduced the book, and that is The Secret Weapon of the Powerless. Um, so in explaining the patterns of covert violence, 
uh, excuse me, we emphasized uh, the influence of three types of power um, and powerlessness. Uh, and that's physical power, economic, and personal power, which we kind of defined as an individual's ability to control the manner and direction of their own life, uh, as well as to receive uh, the respect and treatment from others that they think they deserve. And so in most, if not, in most, if not all societies around the world, women on average have less access to all three types of power. Um, physically smaller on average, on the losing end of the gendered pay gap, and subject to social norms and beliefs that tend to privilege aspects of masculinity over femininity. And so with less access on average to powerful positions within social institutions, uh, women who are looking to attack, you know, to, to, to use violence, uh, would find covert violence especially appealing, given this lack of, of power in these areas. And traditional gender roles also tend to present more opportunities for women than for men to attack in surreptitious ways. Uh, for example, expectations um, for women as caregivers means that they're more likely to be responsible for food preparation and serving <laughs> food, which presents opportunities for poisoning, a common covert method. And assumptions about women's nurturing nature may reduce suspicions of any kind of nefarious intentions, while simultaneously placing them in greater proximity to the most weak and vulnerable uh, among us. So in, in similar ways, and in some different ways too, uh, children also lack access to all three forms of power, especially compared to young and middle-aged adults, um, generally smaller in stature, you know, uh, children, you know, those are often, you know, the smaller children are often the targets of bullies. They may be, you know, picked on by their peers. Um, most children lack economic means, uh, at least, you know, that they have sole control over and also lack a lot of autonomy you know, compared to adults. So um, feeling powerless or being denied what they see as their just rewards also leads to frustration for children and potentially a desire to lash out. So our research seems to indicate that the covert violence typically committed by children, though, is less likely to be fatal compared to the, you know, the adult perpetrated. Um, but it's nonetheless quite damaging. And, and so those are a couple of, couple of ways that we've, we've linked that, you know, that powerlessness, maybe not having the ability or access to act overtly um, is, is potentially why we see more of these perpetrators in covert cases as, you know, women and on either end of the age spectrum. Thank you for taking us through that. And it does, as you said, kind of, it's right there in the subtitle, but good to discuss um, in a bit more depth. Jack, is there anything you'd like to add on this point? Not really. I think Julie mm. covered it. 
Fair enough. Um, I'd like to move then to another social institution in the book, away from the family for a moment, um, because another place that the both of you talk about covert violence is in educational settings, in, for example, primary school, secondary school, and um, kind of pre-university education. And I was interested particularly in the fact that you both talk about in the book that covert violence in this um, environment might actually be perhaps more likely today. Today's students might feel more resentful, more powerless, and therefore perhaps more likely to turn to covert violence with today's teacher-student dynamic than in previous decades. And so I'm wondering, um, perhaps, Jack, you could tell us a bit about why you think that is? Well, actually, the change uh, in the relationship between teachers and students and their parents really changed dramatically in the late 1960s and then carried on from there to the present. But 50 years ago, um, corporal punishment was much more widely used to discipline students in primary schools and in middle schools as well. Um, what happened after that time is really amazing because what the, the teachers lost the authority that they had in the classroom and student rights became much more important in our culture. And so many times when, when students... Uh, would complain about their the behavior of a teacher, it would be taken to court. Uh, there have been lots of uh, court cases uh, since the late 1960s. Before then, it's hard to find any. So um, the informal relationship between the, the students and the teachers and often their parents as well uh, was replaced by this much more formal way of protecting student rights. And by the way, the outcome of most of these court cases was to do exactly that, to protect the student and to punish the teacher. So teachers definitely lost a lot of their authority uh, at that period. Uh, at one time, even the most humiliating punishments for student misbehavior were largely regarded as acceptable. Uh, but that no longer is true in most schools today. And uh, instead, we see more punishment of teachers than we see of punishment of students. Uh, it's interesting to note that um, there are many cases where uh, students bring a cup of coffee or a water bottle, they place it on their desk at the front of the classroom, and um, one of the students puts cleaning fluid in it, or eye drops, which are poisonous when they're put in the in in the mouth, not the eyes. Um, and 
th- there are so many cases like that where, where teachers are poisoned. They don't all die. Many of them are just injured, many permanently injured over a period of time. But, but students decide they're going to get even with their teacher uh, in this horrific way. And we've seen more and more of those cases nowadays. Many, stu- many teachers who are young, in their 30s, in their 40s, will have a heart attack in class while they're talking with students. Um, we always assume that these are illness, based on illness and not homicide. Well, maybe and maybe not. Hmm. Definitely raising some eyebrows there. Julie, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, I guess I would just reiterate that, um, you know, this has a lot to do with that, you know, losing authority in the classroom. So even though the students, in a lot of ways, lack power in that classroom, they also lack respect for teachers and know that, you know, their their parents also <laughs> lack respect and question their teachers in a way that didn't happen prior to, you know, like the 1960s and before where the teacher's authority was was sort of accepted by all and unquestioned. And, and now that we find more this dynamic, uh, it seems for a lot of, for, for some students anyway, that if they feel wronged, then they feel like they have the right to retaliate. Um, so making, making that connection is something that, that seems, um, uh, I don't know about unique, but un- unusual in social institutions. It might be unique to the school setting. Hmm. But some of the things that you've both just told us about um, do translate, right? The same way that some of the family dynamic side translated into what you told us about schools. Um, some of it is similar, at least if we move into kind of another environment you talk about. Um, covert violence in the workplace some of it seems to translate from the other two, but you also talk about in the book that perhaps it's less common in this environment than in the two we've discussed before. Julie, could you maybe tell us why? Sure. And, and that's that's something that is so interesting, too, is that these power dynamics really play out in different ways um, in different social institutions. And that really came out um, in our data and analysis as well. Um, and so in the workplace, I'd say there's several reasons for this. Uh, one is that workplaces tend to be um, controlled settings with highly structured time, relatively little privacy for most employees. And that means it's more difficult than in other kinds of social settings to accomplish subversive acts without being detected. And especially in um capitalistic nations, the consequences of detection can really be high, can cost somebody their livelihood. In the U.S., that often would mean, um, you know, even not just income, but health care. So the cost is, you know, very high for detection. And the workplace tends to have more explicit power structures than most other social institutions like overt hierarchies that clearly delineate uh, allocations of financial compensation, 
prestige and autonomy, which translate into those three kinds of power that we talk about, the economic and um, social and, um, and, and personal. So not so much physical power in this setting, but certainly the other, the other two. Uh, our analysis suggests then that disgruntled employees who resort to covert violence are more likely than in other scenarios to sort of symbolically attack the company, um, often through product tampering, or they might kind of anonymously target uh, coworkers or supervisors via adulterating their, you know, food or drink, even if it's like the community coffee pot. So sometimes it's not even specifically targeted. Um, but that's what we find um, a little bit more common in the workplace compared to some of these other institutions. Mm. Uh, Jack, any anything to add? Well, workplace violence seemed to escalate in the 1990s, but most of it was overt. Um, what we're seeing more nowadays are employees or ex-employees who decide to get even uh, through acts of violence. Uh, and often they don't look like the violent behavior that they really are. Hmm. Thank you for adding that on. Um, if I can move, I know we're kind of, we're not going into all the detail you guys have in the book about each of these environments, but hopefully we're doing a bit of a highlights tour um, of the different areas investigated. So I'd like to move to the next one, which is um, hospitals and nursing homes, medical environments. Um, perhaps unlike workplaces where you've both just explained to us kind of why there might not be as much covert violence there, you talk about hospitals and nursing homes maybe even being hotbeds of covert violence. There being quite a lot of potential for it in these places. Jack, could you tell us why? You know, death is not something that's foreign to our hospitals, our nursing homes. In fact, we expect deaths in those institutions. And that's why the patients are there to begin with, because that some of them are um, on death's bed. Others have been injured and they're looking to recover. But it gives some of the personnel, the medical personnel, an opportunity to take lives uh, because uh, it, it doesn't look like it's something... Uh, uh, murderous, it looks in fact something that you would expect to happen, that some of the patients uh, will not live as a result of um, their stay in the hospital or the nursing home, especially uh, those who are elderly uh, and are in institutions where uh, many of the patients die over a short period of time. And so you find very few doctors who commit these murderous acts. Um, uh, although there was a doctor in England, who um, Dr. Harold Shipman, who may have killed hundreds 
of nursing home of of not nursing home patients of of patients at home uh, when he made his home visits uh, over a 20-year period. Uh, he may have killed as many as 200, although he was convicted of, of far fewer. Uh, and then he finally committed suicide while incarcerated. But uh, Shipman was one of the few doctors. Doctors already have quite a bit of power, so they don't usually need to find these uh, uh, murderous ways of gaining more of it. Uh, but uh, if you look carefully, you see that there are orderlies, nurses' assistants, nurses' aides, and some nurses who do commit these acts of violence against their patients. Uh, and and it, it, it goes undetected for the most part, the violence happens when uh, when th they inject a poison into the IV or they suffocate the patient with a pillow. Uh, it, these are patients who may be, on, may be uh, uh, not doing well. Uh, they may be on the verge of death or that's what the image is in the minds of the perpetrators at least um, and so for example um, there was one orderly in Cincinnati Ohio who killed 89 patients um, in a nursing home uh, another case was the case of Orville Lynn Majors a male nurse in Indiana who killed as many as 150 patients. Um, and he, they, the, both of them were eventually apprehended and incarcerated, but, not, uh, but only after they had taken a lot of lives. And I just want to say this about Orville Lynn Majors. I did meet him years ago uh, on a television program, and it, the program was about um, innocent people who are who are seen as criminals. In other words, Orville Lynn Majors was seen at that time as perfectly innocent. It wasn't until three years later that they found enough evidence to convict him. It turned out that he was far from innocent. Hmm. Julie, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, uh, you know, in in some cultures, and certainly in the U.S., um, you know, we we don't have a great deal of respect for our older uh, uh, older folks, and so it it seems like these cases can be pretty easy to dismiss. You know, people uh, might be more readily willing to accept that, oh, well, you know, they they died of natural causes and, and don't look further into it because it's, you know, they were old or they were sick and it's easy to believe and move on. And so I, I think that there's that, that cultural element too that we need probably some more regard for for these these people. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is that hospitals also 
you know, you, you see some of these cases where there's maybe a nurse that, you know, injects air into um, an IV or in, into a vein, and there's also drug overdose. It, there are ways to make it, to conceal these this kind of violence uh, that are not as available in other kinds of social institutions. You know, an overdose of um, insulin, you know, can look like a naturally occurring event. So they have access also in these settings to to drugs and other things that can make it look like, you know, uh, an unfortunate but naturally caused death. Mm. Yeah, no, lots of factors um, there that, you know, the, the combination of kind of the extent to which people pay attention, as well as the power dynamics and the, um, I suppose, opportunity or, or things that are available to make it happen. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, all those things combined, I can understand uh, why this is such a possible environment for it. Um, but are there things in any of these environments on kind of the topic of covert violence more broadly that could help this be reduced or prevented or maybe even as an initial step better known? Are, are there anything like that, Julie? Yes. Um, the sh- yeah, the short answer is yes. <laughs> but it, it does appear to be more complex compared to reducing or preventing overt forms. And the obstacle that, that I think will need to be overcome first is that covert violence is not yet collectively recognized, um, as you as you alluded to, um, by authorities or by the general public. So we hope that our book contributes to raising that needed awareness, but it will take more time and I think lots more effort to have any kind of widespread impact. And of course, collective recognition of covert violence is just the first step. Um, law enforcement agencies and other authorities would need to prioritize the detection and investigation of these kind of more passive and nuanced methods that tend to be used in these cases. Things like poisoning, drug overdoses, drowning, arson, um, and suffocation. So that means committing more resources, which are always, always seem to be in short supply, including funds and personnel. Um, so that would also require solid public support. And, uh, but with that said, that maybe the most promising strategy, although also difficult to accomplish, is to tackle the source of the problem, which is social power. Uh, covert violence is tied to feelings of powerlessness or marginalization. That seems pretty clear. And uh, also the associated shame and distrust that often come with those experiences. So we should find more effective and safer outlets for members of society who feel this way, feel marginalized, who feel uh, shame and distrust because of powerlessness, and at the same time work to reduce the entitlements of high status groups. Um, Privileges like that not only contribute to other people's marginalization, but they're also likely to lead to frustration, anger, and violence when members of high-status groups feel like those entitlements have been denied to them. Uh, we, we also can work to increase the credibility of conventional solutions for uh, resolving difficult power-related issues that people experience. 
and we can promote more social awareness and the importance of speaking up or intervening when individuals or situations just don't seem or feel right. Uh, Often in those scenarios, social norms related to politeness or respecting others' privacy can prevent such action. There often are examples in these cases where, you know, some, some bystander maybe thinks, you know, this nurse is behaving oddly. Um, this doesn't seem right. That's not even their patient. Why are they in that room? But then they don't question it out loud because they figure, well, they know what they're doing. This is their job, not mine. And they, they don't say anything. So maybe promoting that kind of awareness and uh, speaking up um, in those situations. Yeah, Jack, what do you want to add? Well, I, I think Julie is absolutely correct. Um, and the first step really is to have medical examiners, criminologists, investigators, and other professionals take the time and use the resources to examine cases that may look like illness or accidents uh, at first blush, but actually are cases of murder that are well disguised. Uh, That is something that we need to do. um, uh, And whether we will do it in the future, I don't know. But we're hoping that our book provokes somebody and some group to think hard and long about cases that looked benign and are really quite malicious. Hmm. Well, that actually, in fact, um, kind of brings me to my final question quite nicely, because um, as you both discussed right at the beginning, Jack, you sort of started us off um, describing the work you've done before this book, the work Julie's done, what you've both done together. This is clearly a topic of longstanding interest to the both of you individually and as a team. So given the importance of this topic and the goal of raising awareness, is this something you're going to continue to work on? Do you have an idea of what your next project might be? Is there anything you'd like to highlight, whether or not it's on this topic, whether or not it's together? Um, Jack, perhaps you'd like to go first? Well, Julie and I definitely will maintain our interest in this topic. Uh, In the short term, however... We are in the process of writing a chapter on serial murder for a a handbook on violence, which is to be published later this year. Um, So that's really where we are at the present time. Yeah, we're we're talking about um, expanding our our data set on the reclassified deaths, Um, and you know if we can get if we can get a, a an even better data set than what we had used in the in the original study. Um, maybe we can uncover some additional uh, nuance about these cases. Brilliant. That's certainly true. 
Well, I think there's um, some really interesting work to be done on this uh, further. I mean, even beyond the book, but there is obviously so much in the book. So for anyone who's curious about this and wants to get into more of the details, the book itself is titled Covert Violence, The Secret Weapon of the Powerless, published by Bristol University Press, if you want to go read all about it. Jack and Julie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much.